Luke 6, verse 12 to 16. So if you, you'd open your Bible there to Luke 6, verse 12 to 16. And the theme, the kinds of people God uses. The kinds of people God uses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your word on this wonderful Lord's Day. For another Lord's Day morning where we come together as your people to sing praise to you, and to bring offerings of worship through our giving and through our singing and through our prayers and as we listen to your most holy word and through the fellowship we enjoy as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I ask that you would please bless the time together in the scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most young pastors fall into the trap of trying to imitate their spiritual hero. Uh, and to, to follow that pastor, almost like you follow a recipe, they want to follow this pastor's ministry and they think I should do exactly what he does and follow his style of ministry. But obviously that's an error, that's a mistake, because God doesn't use only one personality type. God doesn't use only one style of ministry, of pastoral ministry, of Christian ministry. God uses different kinds of people and he uses them in different ways. And we have an example of this in Luke 6. So let's read Luke 6, verse 12. <clears throat> In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So we're going to answer three questions this morning to see what kinds of people God uses. The first question, how did he choose them? And that's in verse 12. Uh, so if you're in a business or you're in a, a large company, or even a small company, how do you choose a leader of a company? Well, you have an interview, and you see who's the best candidate for that job. Or in some companies, you pay a bribe, and you can get in and get the job. Or uh, maybe you high up in the company, and you pull some strings to get your friends to be a leader with you, or maybe in our country there's the quota system where you need a, you have to have a certain skin color to get the job. In the old days it worked like that, just in the reverse. But that's not how Jesus works in his church. This is how Jesus works. We see in verse 12, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So Jesus prays for a whole night before he chooses leaders in his church. And he doesn't want any leaders, that's why he prays. He asks his father, who are the leaders you choose? Who are the leaders you appoint? 
And so Jesus now chooses these leaders, and the, the reason why he chooses leaders is because of verse 17 to 19, what's coming, uh, where the work just becomes so much, Jesus wants helpers, and then obviously, Jesus wants helpers because he won't be here forever. He's going back to heaven soon, or within a few years' time, so he needs these leaders, and he wants to appoint these leaders, he wants to train these leaders, so they can continue with the work when he's returned to heaven. And shouldn't we do the same? Shouldn't we, like Jesus, pray to the Lord, asking for the right leaders who can continue with the work when we are no longer here? We're going to die. We're going to get old and die. Maybe we won't even get old. We'll just die. And so we need people to follow up. That's what the late Martin Holt did. I remember he told us once that probably about well less than a year before he retired from his church, he fasted for six or seven days, uh, spending those days in prayer, asking the Lord, please show me the man. Who is the man that should continue uh, in this work? And the Lord showed him the man. The Lord gave him the right man, and the man took over from him. And a few months after that, Martin then went into church planting, got involved in a church plant. And then a few months after that, he went to heaven. He died quite unexpectedly. That's what Moses did in the book of Numbers. Numbers 27, verse 15 to 23, you see Moses asking the Lord. The Lord said, Moses, you're not going into the promised land. And then Moses said, but Lord, what about Israel? What about the Israelites? They'll be like sheep without a shepherd. So please, will you appoint the right man? And don't let your people be like sheep without a shepherd. And then God appoints Joshua, and Joshua takes over from Moses. You see the same in the early church in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 2 and 3. The Holy Spirit... Uh, while the leaders are fasting and praying, they're worshipping the Lord, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to appoint for me and set apart Barnabas and Paul. And Paul's name at that stage was still Saul. I want you to appoint them as missionaries. They, are, they have to be sent out from this church in the city of Antioch. And that's exactly what they do. They fast and pray and then send them out. Or in Acts 14 verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in the churches and they fast and pray, and they appoint these elders to do the work of leadership in a church. Now, unfortunately, many churches don't do it this way. What they do is they, they look out for a kind of a CEO. They want to see who's a chief executive officer, who's a business personality, business-type personality, or who has money, or who is a volunteer, who's willing, and they appoint those people. Or they just ask the, the members of the church, uh, nominate some people for us, and then we're going to vote on this. And they choose leaders. And there's very little prayer that goes together with us, with us and the way they choose leaders. And that's not how Jesus did it. Because in verse 12, we see Jesus pray through the whole night before appointing leaders. So the pattern Jesus used is not the pattern we see in, in many churches. And that's not the biblical pattern. Because the Bible, as we see here, the Bible starts with prayer. That's how we appoint leaders. We pray. We pray earnestly. We pray passionately. We pray fervently. We pray with all seriousness to ask the Lord, give us wisdom and show us who the men are that should continue the work of ministry. And then we start looking out for men of good character. 
You, you take 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, and you look at that passage, and there are some characteristics of a good leader, there are character qualities of a good leader, and you measure the men against those qualities. And you see, are these men of character? Will they be men of God? Are they spiritual leaders? Now, how do you do this? You don't do this the way most Baptist churches do this. In most Baptist churches, they will ask the members to nominate. So, in other words, you say, I want my friend to be an elder, I want my friend to be a spiritual leader, I want him... And you write down a name on a piece of paper, and then the church votes about that. And whoever gets the most votes, he's in. He's the next elder. Or if they get more than 70% of the votes, they become elders. That is not the biblical pattern. Um, that's the way you choose deacons, according to Acts 6, verse 1 to 7. You ask the members, who are the people you see as servants? Now, deacons aren't spiritual leaders. Uh, they are people busy with the work of serving, for instance, taking money to the widows or that kind of thing, helping the poor and so on. But they're not the spiritual leaders. When it comes to spiritual leaders, then the elders should identify new leaders and the elders should appoint new leaders. This is what you see with Jesus. Jesus here prays, he appoints them. Uh, in verse 13, he chooses 12 of all these disciples, he chooses 12 and he names them apostles. Or in Acts 14.23, you see the same thing. Paul and Barnabas, they appoint leaders. 1 Timothy 4 verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, the elders laid their hands on you. So you were appointed by fellow elders. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, you need to be on the lookout. Find faithful men and then you start training them so they can train others. You find the faithful men. Titus 1 verse 5, Paul says to Titus, you go around to these cities, the churches that were planted recently, and you appoint elders. You appoint spiritual leaders. So it's the elders that must appoint new elders. It's the elders that appoint spiritual leaders. And that goes whether you're a part-time elder, in other words, the church doesn't pay you to be an elder because you've got another job, or maybe you're a full-time elder like I am. You get paid by the church. You're, the, you're a pastor in the church. And so, so the elders must appoint part-time elders and full-time elders. And so it's not biblical for a church to call, let's say, Let's say I accept a call to a new church. There's a church and I think, right, the Lord is moving me there. God wants me to go there. And so I go to a new church. It's not right of me then to accept the call to the new church, but I do nothing in appointing a man in my place. I just leave it to the church. I just leave it to the members. I just leave it to some call committee. I just leave it to maybe the de denomination. Uh, people outside our church, will you just uh, s s please see to it that someone uh, takes over the job, takes over the work, and continues the work? That's not biblical. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what Moses did. That's not what Paul did. Jesus appointed other leaders before he left. Moses appointed, he asked, and he asked God's help, give me another leader. He laid hands on him. Paul did the same thing. He appointed Timothy and said, you go on with this work. So what the pastor should do if he goes to another church, he accepts a call to another church, is he, what he should do is he, he should gather with his fellow elders, with the other elders, and they must make sure there is someone who will take over the work, take over the reins.
You know, many pastors, what they do is they say, no, no, I don't want to be part in deciding who's the man who's going to be my, uh, the man to follow me up and continue the work. I think that's unethical. The church should decide. No. That pastor worked for the, with, the, with the people. He worked for many years. He worked with a flock. He worked with a sheep. And now he just shrugs his shoulders and says, well, it doesn't matter who, who's the one to take over from me. What if it's a wolf? What if a wolf comes in and he tears apart the flock and he scatters the flock? Of course the pastor should be involved and say, I'm not going to allow that. I'm going to make sure they've got a good spiritual leader, a full-time pastor, and I get the right man in my place before I move on. So the church, the congregation, shouldn't be without a pastor. The sheep shouldn't be without a shepherd. The church shouldn't be without a full-time leader for months and months and months because the guy just moved on without appointing a new man. Moses prayed, Lord, please, don't let your, be, your, sheep be, uh, your people be like sheep without a shepherd. Appoint a man, and God does. So in other words, if the pastor finishes, if today is his last Sunday at this church, tomorrow the new pastor must start. They mustn't be without a pastor. This is not what Jesus did. He trained men, and when he left, everything was in place. They could continue, and he would empower them by his Holy Spirit to continue the work. You see, because if the pastor leaves the flock alone, if he just leaves the flock to themselves, he leaves the church to itself, and, and things turn out badly and poorly, well, he's responsible. Because Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.22, when, when he has to appoint leaders, he says, don't take part in the sins of others. Meaning, don't appoint someone too quickly and it's the wrong man, and if that guy messes up, you're responsible with that guy because you appointed him. And the same with a pastor. If he doesn't appoint anyone, he just leaves, and a new guy comes and he messes up, that pastor that left is responsible because he should have appointed a new man, together with the help of the, his fellow elders. Second question. What did Jesus choose them for? So we just saw how did he choose them? He prayed. Second, what does he choose them for? What did he choose them for? That is in verse 13. Now, there's a movement in a number of churches nowadays, a popular movement called the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. And what these guys do, it's very popular in their eyes, they are still apostles today. They say that people in the churches with the apostolic office and the apostolic gifts, and they can continue as apostles. That's quite popular, by the way, among many prosperity churches. You see it in Africa. Very popular to read of apostle so-and-so and apostle this and that. And they think they're apostles. But if they really knew what an apostle was, they wouldn't just use the term so loosely. So what is an apostle? Well, in verse 13 we see Jesus, it says, When Dame came, he called, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Now, disciple, the Greek word just means uh, a pupil. He's a pupil, he's someone who's learning from a teacher, he follows a certain teacher, but Jesus took from these disciples, because he had many, and he took and he chose 12 from those disciples and he called them, he named them apostles. Apostle, the Greek word means uh, someone who is officially set apart, someone who is officially sent out. And so these apostles are the sent ones, sent by Jesus. Now, first of all, when it says Jesus chose them, obviously they, they have been chosen unto salvation. 
as we see in um, John 13, verse 17, where Jesus said, I know whom I have chosen, meaning that Judas wasn't one of the chosen ones. Or in John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, You didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And then in verse 19, I chose you out of the world. It doesn't just mean choosing them out of the church. In other words, he has a number of Christians and he chooses them and say, you're apostles. They're also chosen out of the world. They are saved. All right, so first of all, they're chosen unto salvation, but then they are also chosen as leaders of the church. And they're not just leaders of a local church, of a local local congregation, Kenton Park Baptist Church or uh, Bloemfontein Presbyterian Church. They're not just chosen... Um, as leaders of a local church, they are the 12 leaders, 12 apostles, the 12 leaders of the new Israel, the church. In the in, in Old Testament, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, you have the 12 apostles. So they're the very, very first ones to preach the gospel. Because Jesus brought the gospel, he preached the gospel. And then these are the first ones appointed by Jesus to preach the gospel. It's like these 12 apostles, they are the ones laying the foundation of the church through the preaching of their message, the preaching, the preaching of the gospel. Ephesians 2 verse 20 says, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In Matthew 16 verse 18, Jesus said to Peter, You shall be called Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. So the apostles, they lay the foundation of the church by preaching the gospel for the very first time. And they also do this by the Holy Spirit leading them and teaching and instructing them and guiding them so that they were the ones who wrote down the New Testament. Uh, Jesus, the, Jesus said that the Spirit will come and will remind the apostles of everything Jesus said. So they recorded accurately all the words of Christ and all the things Jesus did. And in John 16, we read that the Spirit would come in, He would guide them into all the truth. He would remind them. He would teach them the words of Jesus. He would teach them of things to come. He wouldn't speak out of Himself, but only what He heard from Christ, He would speak. So it's the Word of God that they wrote down, not their own words merely. Uh, as 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, Paul says that the Thessalonians received the preaching of the apostles, the, the preaching of Paul, not as the word of men, but they accepted it for that which it really is, namely the word of God. Um, if you reject the apostles' writings, you don't reject a man, but you reject God who gives his Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 8. Paul says, I write to you by a command from the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4.15. So it's not just the words of man, this book, the Bible, and the New Testament in this case. It is the word of God, written down by the apostles, empowered by the Spirit, taught and instructed by the Spirit. And that's how in the early church, in the very first centuries after the apostles, that's how the early church determined whether a book is part of the New Testament or not. The question was, is it written by an apostle or by one of the apostles' helpers? So I hope you can see that the apostles, it's not just another group. And you can just become part of that group by declaring yourself to be an apostle or by purchasing the office of, of an apostle by paying enough money somewhere. And now they dub you an apostle. They give you a certificate saying you are now apostle so-and-so. Uh, you don't be become an apostle by, oh, someone just, the right person laid hands on you and prayed for you and now you're an apostle. No, they are no longer apostles. When Judas died, 
<laughs> Jesus appointed a new apostle in Acts chapter 1. But after the apostle Paul, Jesus did not choose another apostle. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8, Last of all, Christ appeared also to me. I saw the risen Christ. I am an apostle. But after Paul, no more apostle. So no preacher today, no pastor today, no whoever they call themselves today, spiritual leader, has the same authority as an apostle and as any of the apostles had. There was a man who lived in the first century, he was born in the year 35 AD, died in 107 AD. His name was Ignatius of Antioch. And Ignatius of Antioch, he said it of himself. He said that Peter and Paul were apostles. Their words of authority. What they told you, that's a command from the Lord. Mine is not. I'm not an apostle. I'm only a servant. So don't listen to people who say that they are apostles so and so. They call themselves apostles. Don't listen to them. And when people tell you they, they get some, they get all these new teachings from God. They get it directly from God. They don't need the Bible. That is nonsense. My authority as a preacher doesn't lie in my own words. It lies in the words of Scripture. And as pastors, we don't preach our own words. We preach the words that Jesus gave through the apostles and prophets. In other words, we preach the Old and the New Testaments. Acts 2 verse 42, the early church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. And that also refers there especially to the Old Testament. So Old and New Testament, that's what we preach, not our own teachings. Jesus didn't call us to tell stories. Jesus didn't call me to give motivational speeches. Jesus called me and sent me, like he sent the apostles, to preach the word. And the pastor who doesn't do that, pull him down, shout him down, pull him out of the pulpit, he shouldn't be there. He's not worthy to be used of God. And he's not worthy of you giving him your like on Facebook. Even if he preaches on TV and he has thousands of followers. Don't you follow him. Third question. Who were they? That's in verse 14 to 16. So who were they, these apostles? You know, some people are very innovative. They're very smart. They're very clever. And they've got very clever ways of, let's say, they don't have many tools. All they have is a hammer and a shifting. And they, they, they can do pretty amazing stuff with those two tools. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus uses these broken tools. He uses these broken people, these apostles, and he does mighty works through them. And that doesn't say something about how wonderful they are. That says something about how wonderful Jesus is. He can use these broken tools and do miracles, do amazing stuff. So take these apostles as an example. Who were they? Well, first of all, in verse 14, Simon, whom he named Peter. There you have Simon Peter. His name is Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter in John 1, verse 42. And he affirmed this in Matthew 16, verse 18. Uh, you, sh you shall be called Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, Peter means stone. That's what his name means. So, so Jesus is going to change him in this immovable rock, in this leader of the apostles. He's the leader of the apostles. Uh, there are four lists in the New Testament of the apostles' names, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then also in Acts chapter 1. 
And every time the very first name you read is Simon Peter. So he's top of the list. He's the leader of the apostles. And also in, in the book of Acts, just again and again you see Peter is the leader. I've got a number of references here. Acts 1.15, Acts 2.14, Acts 3 verse 12, 4 verse 8, 5 verse 3 and so on. And every time you see Peter, he's the speaker. He speaks for the apostles. Even when all the apostles are together, Peter's the one who speaks for them. Uh, Galatians 2 verse 9 calls him a pillar. He's a pillar of the church. Now before Jesus called him, he was just a low-class, ordinary nobody. He's this uneducated fisherman. In, in Luke 5, you see he's a fisherman. Acts 4 verse 13 says he's uneducated. And yet after his conversion, Jesus uh, so changes him. He becomes a new person. Even after his conversion, all his sin isn't gone. <laughs> uh, none of us, in fact. Our sin won't be gone until we see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. But, but even after his conversion, he's this impulsive guy. He makes decisions before thinking often. He's, uh, he's a clown. You know, He's the leader of the class. He's class captain. He always talks first. Jesus asks a question and the first one to answer is Peter. And sometimes he says stupid stuff. He's overconfident. Jesus, I'll never deny you. Even though all of them deny you, I'll never deny you. I will die with you, Jesus. Jesus, I rebuke you. You can't say that you're going to die. This will never happen to you. You know, that's Peter. Always talking first. Always ahead of the rest. And by grace, Jesus changes him. Jesus changes him into a strong leader, into a committed leader, a devoted leader. And in the end, we know that Peter writes two books in the New Testament, 1 and 2 Peter, toward the end of the Bible. And then right at the end, Peter gives his life by dying for Christ. Um, in John 21, verse 18 and 19, Jesus prophesies that. He predicts that. Now, according to tradition... I'm going to tell you how the apostles died. It's not in the Bible. This is just tradition. This is church history. So we don't know the exact stories. But, but according to tradition, apparently uh, Caesar Nero, Nero Caesar, the Roman emperor, wanted to kill Peter. And the believers pleaded with Peter, you must run away. Flee, flee, flee for your life. The emperor is going to kill you. And, and then Peter flees and when he comes to the city gate, the gates of Rome, uh, he sees Jesus and then Jesus asks him, where, uh, or, or at least he sees Jesus and he, he asks Jesus, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified again. And Peter then understands what Jesus means. Jesus is actually saying, Peter, turn back and give your life for me. And that is what Peter does. And they do crucify Peter indeed. But Peter says, I'm not worthy to die like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. And church history says that's how he died. The next apostle is Andrew in verse 14. He's also a fisherman like his brother. Peter's his brother. And we read this in, in Matthew 4 verse 18. That he's a fisherman, the brother of Peter. And he was at first a disciple of John the Baptist. And the, he then becomes the very first disciple of Jesus. Because John the Baptist one day walks with some of his two of his disciples and he sees Jesus coming and he says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And immediately, Andrew and the other disciple, they leave John the Baptist and they start following Jesus. You read this in 
John chapter 1, verse 35 to 40. Now, Andrew is the kind of guy, he's always bringing individuals to Jesus. He's always bringing people to Jesus, introducing people to Jesus. Like in John 1, it's Andrew that brought Peter to Jesus. He says, Peter, come, we found the Messiah. Let me go and show you. And he brings his brother. Or in John chapter 6, there's a little boy with five loaves and two fishes. And Andrew says, come, let me take you to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, here's a little boy. He's got lunch. Maybe you can do something with this. Or in John 12, uh, Philip says, Andrew, uh, Andrew, here's, here's some Greeks. They want to see Jesus. And Andrew says, come, I'll take you to Jesus. And he takes them to Jesus. So always bringing individuals to Jesus. And according to tradition, what happened later on with Andrew is he, he became a missionary. He preached uh, right at the coast of the Black Sea and also in what is now called Uzbekistan. And finally, he was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece, in the southern part of Greece. He was crucified. And that's the very same cross you find on the Scottish flag, the blue flag with a white cross, the X-shaped cross. It's called St. Andrew's Cross. The next apostle is James, in verse 14. James. Uh, now James and then his brother John in verse 14. Also James and John, their brothers, they are the sons of Zebedee, according to Matthew 4. They are fishermen with Peter and Andrew, according to Matthew 4. And James, Peter, Peter, James and John, they are like the inner circle, the inner three of Jesus' disciples. They the closest to Jesus, like in in Mark 5, Jesus heals or raises a girl from the dead. She's lying in the house and he allows no one to go with him except Peter, James and John. Or in Mark 9, Jesus goes, goes up the mount, a mountain where he's transfigured. His face shines like the sun, but he allows no one to come with him except Peter, James and John. Or in Mark 14, Jesus goes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he goes further in, deeper in. And the disciples who come with him are Peter, James and John. Now, James and John, they are on fire, these guys. They are called, even by Jesus in Mark 3, the sons of thunder. Because they've got a fiery personality at one stage. They say, Jesus, we'll burn up these Samaritans. Let us call fire from heaven and burn them up. Because they don't want to welcome you in Luke 9. And Jesus has to rebuke them. In Mark 10, they want to, they want to sit on Jesus' right and left hand in the kingdom. Jesus, can we sit on the right and left in, in your kingdom? And because they've got this fiery personality... Um, James is the very first apostle who gets martyred, who gets killed when Herod decapitates him. He chops off his head with a sword in Acts 12, verse 2. Next apostle is John in verse 14. Now, I've already said a number of things about John, but John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, Jesus loved all the disciples, but he had a very special love for John. Uh, John 13, verse 23. You just read the Gospel of John and over and over, John calls himself, he never calls him by his own name. He describes himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And right at the end of John, in chapter 21, verse 20, and then verse 24, you see this is the apostle who is writing these things, the disciple. This, I am the author of this book. And so we know it's John. And the reason he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved is as if John is saying, oh, I can't believe he loves me. He loves me. 
Uh, and especially he might have thought that because he had, he had such a fiery personality and, you know, sometimes he was, he came over too strongly. For instance, at one stage he, there was a, a man driving, casting out demons and John said to Jesus, Jesus, I stopped him. I told him, I told him stop doing that. You're not part of our group. In, in Luke 9, verse 49 and 50. And Jesus said, John, don't do that. He's not against us, he's for us. So in the end, what Jesus did is he, it's almost like he channeled um, John's fiery personality. And, and John became one of the leaders of the early church with Peter. You see Peter and John, Peter and John, Peter and John. Uh, Galatians 2, verse 9 also. John was one of the, the pillars of the church, like Peter. And Jesus changed him into the disciple of love, the apostle of love, uh, the apostle of love who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote First and Second and Third John, those short letters toward the end of the Bible, who wrote the book of Revelation. And later on, according to Revelation 1 verse 9, he was banned to the Isle of Patmos, to this island. It was his prison. But he was set free later on, and according to history, he died as a very old man at the age of 100. Next apostle is Philip in verse 14. He's from a town called Bethsaida. According to John uh, chapter 1, it's the same town where Peter and Andrew were from. And he's a very logical guy. And sometimes his logic comes in the way of his faith. For instance, uh, one day Jesus, when he, when he fed 5,000 families, just before he started, he broke the bread and the fish to feed these 5,000 families, he said, where are we going to get bread for these people, Philip? He's testing Philip. In John 6, we read this. And Philip says, Lord, you know, I'm a logical guy. You can take 200 days' worth of salary, and it's not enough uh, to feed all these people. And so it's like he just can't understand. How can, how can Jesus feed 5,000 families? We don't have enough money. So he's logical, and that, that hampers his faith. It hinders his faith. And then he also just looks right past the miracles of Jesus. Jesus did all these miracles and then toward the end of his ministry, Philip asks him, Lord, just show us the Father, that's enough. In John 14, and Jesus, Jesus says, Philip, how long have I been with you? I've done all these miracles. Can't you see the Father is in me? I am in the Father. Can't you see he who has seen me has seen the Father? So don't you see it? And we're very glad that these things changed in Philip's life. Because Jesus eventually used him to spread the gospel. And in the end, Philip died. Uh, some people say he was stoned to death and others say he was crucified. The next apostle is Bartholomew. That's in verse 14. Uh, now Bartholomew, his name means the son of Tolmai. That's what Bar in Hebrew, like uh, Bar Tolmai, son of Tolmai. So he's the son of Tolmai. His full name is Nathaniel, the son of Tolmai. In John uh, chapter 1, verse 45, we see Philip calling Nathaniel or Bartholomew, bringing him to Jesus. <laughs> but this Nathaniel, he just can't believe. When, when he says, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, What? Nazareth? That town? Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's like saying, What's from Brackband? Can anything good come from Blackburn or from Kempton? Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
But despite his prejudice, Jesus says, Here's an Israelite in whom is no deceit. There's no guile. There's nothing twisted in this man's character. This man is a sincere man. He's an upright man. John 1 verse 47. And then tradition tells us that he went and he preached in India. He translated the Gospel of Matthew into one of the local dialects, the local languages. And he died in the country of Armenia. He was first beaten with rods, then he was crucified. Then they flayed him, and actually, in other words, they actually skinned him alive um, before he was even dead, and then they chopped off his head. Matthew is the next apostle in verse 15. He's also named Levi, uh, the son of Alphaeus, according to Matthew 9, verse 9, and uh, Mark 2, verse 14, and Luke 5, verse 27. And he was a tax collector. Uh, says Luke 5. He's a tax collector. These are guys, they work for the Romans and then they lay the tax on heavy on their own people, the Jews, and they actually crook you a bit. They take some of your money. Matthew 10 verse 3 says he was a tax collector. And Jesus came to save such people. We saw that in Luke 5. Jesus came and he saved uh, Matthew. He saved this tax collector and then he used Matthew in the end to write the Gospel of Matthew. And then Matthew went further. He preached in Ethiopia, says uh, church history. He preached in Egypt. And then the king, a king called Hyrcanus, he killed Matthew with a, not quite a spear. Uh, a spear. I can't remember the English name for this, but it's a sp you've seen this in medieval uh, weapons. So it's, it looks like an axe with a spear's point right at the top. And he was rammed through with this. Uh, Thomas, in verse 15, he's the next apostle. Now, Thomas is one of a twin. He's got a twin brother. And that's why in John 11, verse 6, he's called Didymus. It means twin. So he's one of a twin. He's a very pessimistic character. Everything is dark. He's like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, the donkey. You know, everything is bad. Everything is dark. There's only gray and black and uh, but there's no color in his world. So that's the kind of character he is. But in the same breath, we can say he's a very loyal character, loyal to Christ. For instance, the Jews wanted to stone Jesus in Jerusalem. And then Jesus goes back. And the disciples, it's like they're saying to Jesus, are you crazy? The Jews just wanted to kill you the other day. Now you're going back. And then Thomas, he's so loyal to Jesus, but he, you see that he sees the dark side of stuff, but he's loyal. He says, well, if Jesus is going, let's be loyal to him. Let's stick with him. Don't let him die alone. Let's go and die with him. In John chapter 11, verse 13 to 16. And then when Jesus says, I'm going away, I'm going back to my father. You know, Thomas again sees the dark side of things, but he's also loyal. He says, well, Jesus, can't we come with you? And Jesus says, hey, you're going to come there sometime. And he says, well, we don't even know the way, Jesus. Show us the way. And Jesus says, Thomas, don't you understand? I am the way and the truth and the life. And then toward the end of Jesus' ministry, you see Thomas doubting. I don't believe, I'll never believe that Jesus rose from the dead until I see him with my own eyes and I touch him and I put my fingers in the marks where the nails were. And then he does see Jesus, and he falls before him and worships him as Lord and God. And, and this is the same Lord and God that he preaches, because according to church history, he preaches in Persia, that's modern-day Iran, Iran, 
and he preaches in India, and it's in India that he dies when he's ran through with a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, verse 15. Uh, now, his dad is called Alphaeus. Matthew's dad is called Alphaeus, according to Mark 2, verse 14. It may be that they are brothers, Matthew and James, this James at least. Maybe that they are brothers. Uh, and some people say that Alphaeus, James the son of Alphaeus, Alphaeus is the same man as Clopas. In John 19, verse 25, the husband of Mary. And in that case, this James must be James or little James or young James, according to Mark 15, verse 40. And then church history says that he was crucified in Egypt when preaching the gospel there. And then we have Simon the Zealot in verse 15. Uh, the Greek word zealot, zelotes, zelotes, it, it may just describe his zeal, that word zealot, his zeal, his passion for the law of God, like Paul was before he was converted, or like the Jews in Acts 21 verse 20, zealous for the law, or like Phineas in the book of Numbers, chapter 25, zealous for the Lord. So it might be describing his passion and his zeal and his energy, but more likely, it, when it calls him a zealot, that Greek word translated zealot might mean that he was part of a certain um, political party, the zealots, a certain group, a political group that was so passionate for the Jewish religion and for Jewishness they wanted to drive the Romans out of Israel by using force, by using violence. They hated anything pro-Roman. They hated anyone who is pro-Roman. And so you can just think what Simon must have thought of Matthew, because Matthew is a tax collector. He works for the Romans. So Simon would have wanted to stab him with a dagger probably, but Jesus changed Simon and he changed Matthew. And he... He put them in the same group and they had to bear with one another. And Simon, with this great passion he has for the Lord, in the end, he became a preacher of the gospel in Mauritania, in far west Africa, and also in Great Britain. And then finally, he died for a cause that is much greater than politics. He died for Jesus and the gospel by being crucified. And then second... Second last, we have Judas, the son of James, in verse 16. Uh, in Matthew 10, verse 4, he's called Thaddeus or Lebius. And that's probably just a nickname his parents gave him because Thaddeus and Lebius means uh, great heart, one with a great heart, one with a wide heart, with an open heart, or, or heart child, child of a man's heart. He's close to his parents' heart. And maybe it, it points to his loving character and his gentle character. Uh, we see this character trait in John 14, verse 22, where he says to Jesus, Jesus, why are you only going to reveal yourself to us? Why only show yourself to the disciples? Why not show yourself to the world? It's like he has a heart for the world. He wants the world to know Jesus. And we see that heart for the world when he takes the gospel to Turkey, according to church history. And there he dies as a martyr by being beaten to death or some say by being chopped to death with an axe. And then the last one on the list is Judas Iscariot in verse 16. Now, Iscariot means man of Keriot, 
Ish means man and Keriot is a place, a town. Ish Keriot, man of Keriot. Uh, that's a town about 16 kilometers south of Hebron, uh, east of the Dead Sea in Israel. And we know that from Joshua 15 verse 25. And Judas is called here the traitor. He's the traitor. No one today, especially Christians, no one wants to call their child Judas. Uh, Jesus said from the beginning, Judas was a devil. In John 6, verse 70 to 71, Judas stole money from the disciples' purse. The disciples had a collective purse. And Judas stole money from it. And he betrayed Jesus. Um, in the end, he betrayed Jesus for money. He wanted money. And he gave himself over to Satan. Uh, and then Satan entered into Judas. Luke 22, verse 3, John 13, verse 27. Judas was such a hypocrite, not one of the twelve disciples, even in their wildest dreams, thought that Judas would be the traitor. Even when Jesus said Judas is the traitor, they still didn't understand, according to John 30. And then Judas did betray Jesus in the lowest manner possible, in the basest manner possible. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss, saying, the one I kiss, that's the man, arrest him. And when Jesus was condemned to death, Judas's conscience bothered him and he took back the money, took it back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, back to the chief priests. But his repentance wasn't sincere because he just followed that act with another sin by hanging himself, by committing suicide, Matthew 27. And apparently when he hung himself, either the branch broke or the rope broke and Judas fell forward and his gut split open. And his intestines came out. Acts 1 verse 18. Uh, Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. The son of condemnation. The son of judgment. In John 17 verse 12. Jesus said it would have been better for Judas if he hadn't been born. Matthew 26 verse 24. And then in the end we know that Judas went to hell. Says Acts 1 verse 25. So, so don't assume, don't assume that this person must be saved. This person must be a Christian because he's a spiritual leader. Judas was a spiritual leader and he wasn't saved. And let us also not be like Judas and try and hide our sin and be hypocrites. But repent, repent and turn to the Lord and be forgiven. Because if you continue in your sin, then you will go with Judas. You will be where Judas is in hell. So rather be like the other disciples. Yes, they were imperfect. Yes, they were broken sinners. Yes, they were nothing special. They were ordinary. And yet Jesus changed them. And Jesus used them to turn the world upside down. Can Jesus do the same with you and through you? Can Jesus use you in that way? What about the people around you? Can Jesus use them, that Christian with a big mouth who talks too much, or that Christian who struggles to pray in front of others or talk in front of a crowd? Can Jesus use him? Can Jesus use her? Can Jesus use that Christian? You know, their logic stands in the way of, of faith. They're like Philip. Or maybe they just rub you the wrong way. Can Jesus use them? Well, if the Lord can change you and I, obviously he can change other people. He can change them and he can use them. So let us be patient with one another and let us bear with one another in love. And let us, let us work with one another with patience 
and bear with one another in love. And I think that's necessary at a time like this because in the past uh, bit more than a week, I've, I've heard that people start grumbling. People in our own church start grumbling against one another. Little things that bother them. I don't like this about that person. And I don't like this about that person. And Jesus wants us to bear with one another in love. Like these disciples. Jesus doesn't want his troops to squabble among each other. He wants us to fight a common enemy. And to extend the kingdom. Heavenly Father, we are indeed in need of your help to love one another and to be used of you and changed by you. And we need grace, Lord, to live a God-pleasing life and to take the gospel to the lost. And we pray that you would help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen.